Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Wow, what can I say? That was literally one of the coolest episodes I've ever done. James Altucher is a, just a beast. I mean, seriously, one of the smartest guys I've ever probably spoken to. We talk all about this, this this concept of you know having multiple interests, taking your ideas, turning your ideas into something of greatness, and how do you do that? Uh, we talk about his new book, Skip the Line. I mean, this is a guy that's hung out with some of the smartest people in the world, from Ray Dalio to Richard Branson to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, I mean, I was just blown away by him. That was really one of the cooler episodes. You can always tell when it's a good episode because it runs way over an hour, and we ran for an hour and 20 minutes. So hope you enjoy the episode. Stay tuned. Peace out. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Brashaze, and boy, do we have a special guest. My man, James Altucher, is in the house. James, what's up, my man? Darius, thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast, The, the Greatness Machine. I wish there was really a greatness machine. I could use it. Oh, man. I, I think you, part, you are part... You're like the Terminator. You, I think you are part greatness machine part human so <laughs> i don't know the, the human part is sort of annoying then <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i have that myself man well look i love having you here um do you mind if i do a, a little bit of housekeeping and then we're going to get running does that work for my man yeah yeah Awesome. So for listeners who are new to the show, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. People are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. And my main man, James, here is neither short of passion nor greatness. Man, I will tell you this, James. I So I got introduced to your work a few years ago, just really just ca- not even looking specifically for you, you, but for like the stuff you talk about, the site, the, 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 the work around ideas and ideation. It, it ended up on my radar about six or seven years ago. And, and then, uh, you know, just before we started the show, I had talked about how uh, we have a mutual friend in the guys at Scribe, Tucker Max, Javon McCormick, and th- we got to talking about you with those guys over there. And so I was like, man, you're on my short list of people I wanted on the show. So I am so, so pumped to did, have you here. Did they talk. say good things about me? Oh, I man. feel bad because I, I have to write Javon back. He wrote me a, a few months ago and I'm always very bad at like 
responding to people's emails. That's a, a fatal flaw of mine. Oh, no, you know, no, they had great things to say. Um, I actually published my book through through them. So uh, that was when you came up when I was in the process of doing my 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 publishing of my book, but they they spoke highly of you. And I just knew you through your work. So I was like, man, that's somebody I'd love to, to get on the show at some point. So man, here we are. Congratulations to me. <laughs> um, well, th- again, thanks again. I, I always like going on podcasts, particularly really interesting ones, and and uh, I'm I'm excited to be here. Very cool. Um, do you mind if I give your formal bio, and then we'd love to go into your origin story? If that works. Yes. Yes. Very cool. So James, man, James is host of the James Altucher podcast. Over 70 million downloads. We just hit our millionth download on Saturday. He's hit 70 times that. I don't know. For most people who don't understand the magnitude of this, you're, when you're on like YouTube and stuff, there's sometimes people get a lot of downloads. In the podcast world, millions of downloads is a really hard feat. So, And you have a super successful, popular podcast. You're a blogger. Ultra, ultra successful entrepreneur, co-founder of 20 companies, stand-up comedy, investor, chess master, author of the best-selling book, Choose Yourself. And we're here today to talk about the subject of adult learning and your newest book, book, uh, excuse me, Skip the Line. So I'm so pumped to get into all this with you, my my friend. Um, If you don't mind, though, I'd love to get a little bit of your background. Um, You know, what's funny enough is I was watching your TEDx talk this morning on uh, TEDx Boca Raton. And this show, this show, The Greatness Machine, was actually born out of me building two TEDx events in San Francisco. And I said, I'm oh, going to yeah? turn that into a podcast. And it was all about people living their passions to create greatness, which led to the... So this show is born out of, out of a TEDx. You've done a TEDx. But man, I'd love to hear your, your origin story. And then we could chop up some of these, these, these newer subjects. Yeah, no, I, I'm excited about it. So I kind of have a... a you know, an origin story is an interesting phrase because a did did you collect comic books as a kid? Oh man, thousands of them. Yeah, and so did I. And there was this one series I remember called Secret Origins, and it was a it was a DC comic uh, series, and it told the origin stories of all the superheroes. And because people were fascinated with origin stories, so they made a whole series about it. So when when you say um, so. When you when you think of the, the origin story for yourself, though, what 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 tends to resonate most for you? I mean, what resonates most is that it's very varied. Like, if there's one overriding theme, is that kind of to the detriment of everything else. Whatever it is, I'm passionate about is the only thing I can really do at that time. And when I say detriment, it means like. Uh, you know, if I'm focused, if I should be focused on other things, sometimes it's hard for me and I really only like doing things I'm interested in. And and by the way, this is true whether you, whether for me, whether I had a lot of money or I was dead broke or everything in between. And I've been all of those many times. And I mean, I, I, I started out as a programmer. I loved programming, you know, and I was, I, was getting a PhD in computer science and, and all I could think about was computers and the wet, the, the worldwide web triple W was just starting. Like we, we had one of the first web servers at the university I was getting my PhD at. And, uh, and then I totally lost interest. Uh, so I started writing novels, novel after I would write three to 4,000 words a day. I'd write all day long, every day, of course, I failed all my courses and I got thrown out of graduate school <laughs> and I wrote four unpublishable novels. You know, people right now on the Internet, 
everyone's a writer because you could just start writing and hit publish and boom, off it goes to the world. But then there was such a thing that is unfamiliar to people called rejection. And I was rejected all the time. I must have, for every, even for every short story I wrote, because I wrote a lot of short stories as well, I would send them all out. I would send all the novels out to agents, publishers, magazines, whatever. I must have gotten like a thousand rejections during this period. And it, it took 11 years of writing before I published my first piece of writing. And then I would say another five years so 15 years after I started, before I became like a decent writer and probably a good 20 years plus before I felt like I could call myself a, a good writer, you know, maybe a good writer. I don't want to humble brag or whatever, but um, uh, I really, that's the thing I've done most consistently in my life is write. And entrepreneurship, like it happens for many people, was just an accident for me. Like I was working for HBO at the time and I really wanted to make a TV show. Like I always, I didn't have any training in TV or production or anything, but I had lots of ideas and I loved HBO, the channel. So I remember after I was thrown out of graduate school, I got two job offers, one at HBO for $40,000 a year, massive sum in New York city, $40,000 a year, <laughs> another at JP Morgan for $80,000 a year. And I chose HBO instead because I loved HBO. Like I would just sit there and watch HBO all day long. And I really thought, okay, I'm going to work in the IT department. That's my back door into HBO, but I'm going to constantly think about how to do a TV show there. And, but it kind of morphed into me convincing them to do a website. They didn't have it. Nobody had a website then. So I, you know, HBO made HBO.com. I made it for them. And that kind of propelled me into the whole world of entrepreneurship. So, you know, other companies started asking me to do their website. They like the look of the HBO website. So other entertainment companies wanted me to do the, their websites. So I ended up doing like hundreds of entertainment websites and building a business and selling it, even though I was totally not interested in business at all. Like I really just despised business and but but I, I wanted to help my brother-in-law who was in a failing CD-ROM business for for the the young people who don't know what CD-ROMs were. <laughs> we're dating ourselves were, right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm dating myself so much. I'm taking myself to the prom here. But um, <laughs> the, the CD-ROMs were were like I don't even know how you would describe them. They don't. They're nothing. Don't worry about it. Just they're like, they're they like what you stored information on before you had an iPhone. <laughs> I mean, or yeah, kind of. But, but they were like, but they were like physical things. It's like you had to put them in a machine to see what was on the disc, the CD-ROM disc, and that was your 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 path to the information superhighway. Yeah, you, you, but, could, um, you could burn you could burn songs onto a CD-ROM. I mean, like, or built, burn yeah. games onto a CD-ROM. I, I, I was a burner myself, so I understand. Yeah, I mean, that, that, what what my brother-in-law did was he would take record albums and put games on their CDs. He, he would you treat the CD like a CD-ROM. So anyway, I showed him this new thing called the web. I was going to say the internet, but the internet was not new, just the web was. And... Uh, we, I was able to then still work at HBO, but use my brother-in-law to help implement, you know, the websites and 
go to sales meetings when I couldn't make it because I had a full-time job. I had a full-time job for 18 months after I started my first business. We, nice. had, we had like four, 40 employees by the time I felt secure enough to, to quit. And uh, so, yeah, so then from there, uh, I sold the first company and then something really horrible happened, which is I thought I knew a little bit about money because I had just made some money, but it turns out I knew nothing. And I became an investor inappropriately. I shouldn't have been one. This was back in 1999, 2000, 2001. And I went dead broke. I broke every rule of investing and I just went horribly, horribly broke. And it was a horrible period because I had just bought a house and blah. Can I ask a quick question on that? What was your worst investment that you invested in then with that money? Like if you were to pick the all-time worst one. Well, there were so many because it wasn't just about how much I lost. It was about how much I broke what I now consider the rules, the rules of investing. Like for instance, there was a company called Go America, which I thought was really neat. They provided uh, wireless internet services, particularly to deaf people. I don't know <laughs> why this company fascinated me. And then they had an IPO. I went to the roadshow. I was I was really into it. And on IPO, they went. I remember they went public at like eighteen, and the very first day, they ended up at seventeen. And I'm like, oh, usually IPOs go up from like 18 to 40 on the first day. There must be a mistake here. So I bought immediately bought $2 million worth of Go America oh. at 17 and it never ticked up once. I mean, I think it went down to 50 cents almost immediately. Oh my gosh. And, but I was doing things like that quite a bit and just, I just simply, like people said, oh, what did you spend it on, hookers? And I'm like, I wish I had done something like that. And, <laughs> At least then I could I could blame myself for like some moral, you know, decrepitude or whatever. But instead, it was just all bad investing and I bought a house. And so the, the net result was of this was I lost the house. And and so I didn't really gain anything from the mo- money I made. Maybe I gained a little bit. I, I started playing poker a lot and I learned how to play poker, which is a, a great pleasure. But the, it was just really horrible. And then I just sat there for like two years depressed and it was just a horrible, awful period in, in, in history in human history. <laughs> so l- let me ask you a question. I mean, w- one of the themes and you have such a varied background and, and I want to, and I, I feel like it, like your life story is so like just fascinating. And, and so one of the things like, like as I, you know, learned about skip the line, the book we're going to be talking about is is and I'm going to pick a word right now, and you, you probably have heard been called this before, but you seem like kind of a polymath, right? Like polymath. I know some people don't like being called that. Um, are you familiar with that term? I'm assuming you yeah. are, right? Yeah, uh, but you know what I wonder is, so for instance, I've been interested in lots of things. Right. Uh, I've been a, a writer for many years. I've been an entrepreneur. I've been a hedge fund manager slash, you know, I was also a day trader as part of my evolution as a hedge fund manager. So I've been a lot of things. And, and again, I was a programmer. I am a, a national master at chess. Uh, I've been a stand-up comedian. Uh, you know, many, many things that I've been professionally, not just like as a hobby, but like professionally, I've been these things. And uh, it's, I, I sometimes I wonder if I'm like jack of all trades, master of none, because I never really stay with something long enough to say, okay, um, the best in the world at this, you know, maybe writing I've stayed at long enough to be proud of it, 
but nothing, nothing really else. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stopped me from fully enjoying the little things in life, from canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. What do you, so that's where, you know, it's funny when I was like kind of learning about you deeper and, 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 you know, paid attention to the book and kind of hearing all these different things you've done. I mean, I feel like the world kind of, and I, and I'll tell you this, I'm very similar um, in that I'm interested in a lot of different things. I like writing. I like podcasting. I'm really into stand-up comedy. I'm into business. I'm into investing. All these sort of, I mean, like uh, you, you name it. I, I, I'm the list is pretty wide, right? And what I find is that the world tends to reward focus in this obvious way. And, and so that was my, really my question it, it, because it sounds to me like you've taken the position 
is that everything is a learning and that you can then borrow from those learnings. It's a term you use in, in the book, Skip the Lion, to, to then leverage it for the next thing. But I, I feel like a little bit, because I'm a person that loves a ton of different stuff that I, I kind of punish myself for it. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, which is, is like, is that a mistake or is it something where you're like, no, man, that's just who you are and you're leaning into it and the world's going to reward whatever it's going to reward. But at the end of the day, you're here to take a big bite out of life because it sounds like you are eating life at its finest and fullest in all its different flavors. It's, it's a really great question. Like, can I ask you, how do you punish yourself for it? Because I understand. I understand what you I think I understand what you mean, but I just want to hear you say it. Like, what do you mean? Like, like I've been called out for like always moving on to something else. Right. Because I, I get bored. And then I'll move on. And they're like, man, why don't you, you know, like you're you're always... Who calls you out though? You know, I think it's people that get frustrated by the fact that I'm always moving on to new stuff. So sometimes business partners have where they don't like that I'm moving on to the next idea really quickly. Um, And I've had to become disciplined because I know it frustrates others when I'm working with other people. Um, That's probably it. I mean, maybe, you know what? Great question. My answer is I punish myself. I go, man, why can't you just stick with one thing? You know, like... It's something where I kind of beat myself up over it a little bit. Yeah, no, I I totally get it, and it, it it's it's painful. Um, uh, you know, I would say, I would say, you've got to do what you love doing because there's what are you going to do? Spend twelve percent of your life doing something you hate doing. <laughs> Like, why would you do that? That seems like a bad strategy for living life. I mean, ultimately, we're here to learn things, and you always learn things that best when you're passionate about something. Like, imagine if you hate learning French. Are you really going to be able to speak French fluently? No. But let's say you love learning math, and you're going to learn you're just gonna you love you love how theorems work i don't know and <laughs> you're, you're just gonna you're just gonna learn how to all you know all these famous theorems and you're gonna learn the history of mathematics and how it relates to all parts of society and you know everything from like computer science to physics to biology to economics uh you're just gonna you know you're just gonna be great at something it, it's so it's such a good feeling to be great at something because then you can see the nuances of why, for instance, one person's good and another person's mm. not so good. And and you also can appreciate like, oh, this this computer scientist wrote this program this way uh, or this musician. Like when I listen, I'm not an expert at music, for instance. So when I listen to, let's say, Mozart, I can say, oh, yeah, I like that. That's nice. But like someone who's really into music, they understand, oh, he's playing with the structure of the sonata and he did this little twist that other people of his day and age didn't do because it wasn't a sonata then. And, but he was playing with the form and the structure and that's beautiful the way he did that. Like you get this meta appreciation for the things you love doing. And that's great. Like, like I love to, I love to give writing advice. So I have many friends who are in the process of writing books and I love when they say, Hey, can you take a look at this for me? Because when they say that to me, they know it means something. Like they know I'm going to spend a lot of time and we're going to have a big, a couple of big Zoom calls about their book line by line and structure by structure. Because I just love seeing how people think in writing. And I see most people don't do it that well. They do it okay, but they don't do it well. And this is really something that's really important to me. So, and, 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 and learning these nuances is really important to me. 
Do you, and so do you think that having, and I guess that gets to my point, which, which, and, and, and I, I feel like the book skip the line really goes into this. And, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm for me what I find is when I, what I heard you just say is, yeah, there's a beauty in understanding the intricacies and going deep in one subject. But if you're a per, and, and that's where I struggle and maybe I'm not, maybe I'm, maybe I'm kind of thinking of this wrong way because something I'll give you an example for myself. I love making pizzas. I mean, I literally make pizza. Like it's like, I saw that you like make pepper pepperoni pizzas. Your favorite. It's, um, it's meditative for me. I have a new pizza. That's my favorite, which is an anchovy red pizza, anchovy with, with cherry tomatoes. And then I put stracciatelle on it with fresh basil. What up? What Can I ask what stracciatelle is? I, I don't eat cheese. It's the insides of a mozzarella de buffalo, that you, and you put it on after. So it's like spring, it's like drizzling like insides of like liquid gold on top of this pizza. If you like cheese, it's really rich. Right. So so by the way, if someone just had mozzarella instead of stracciatelle, you could tell the difference, right? Like you you understand why stracciatelle is better than just putting cheddar cheese on a pizza <laughs> like you understand yeah. the nuances and the, and the palate and that and you appreciate when someone makes a good pizza probably like uh, if you go to italy and take sample a good pizza you could tell the difference between a good one and a bad one uh, when i go to italy i try to figure out i try to go to the place that was ranked number one in the world that year <laughs> so yeah so and right. i do that that's, right? that's that's every city i go to i go to the best place that's ranked number one in the city for pizza i'm, I'm obsessed because, with it yeah because when you love something and when you learn something that's not only about your own individual mastery and appreciation of the art form of whatever it is you're learning, but it's also a subculture. You become part of the culture of pizza. So you go to Italy, you know the best place. You can go there. You could talk to the chef or the other people there. You, you, it's, a, it's a temple for you, and that's your religion. Not to be sacrilegious about this, but this is, this is an important concept. Like It's like a religion for you. Completely. So, so one of the things I guess what I struggle with is having all these multi interests. I'll use the example podcast, pizza. I'm, I'm, I'm business, right? Like I've grown two hundred million dollar company was the last company I built, right? So I love business, and I what I do is I go well, where do I want to put my energy? And so I, what I find is when when we dive into all these things, and, and let's talk about the book, you know, skip the line. We talk. You're dispelling the myth of this ten thousand hour rule, right? That was made yeah. popular by what was it uh, Christensen out of Harvard? Uh, no, Matt. Uh, no, Malcolm Gladwell popularized it, but he didn't, of course, do the research. And Anders Ericsson That's right. at actually uh, Florida State University uh, was the one who did the research to, to study this. Right. So so for me, like sometimes I'm actually you're looking at it right now. If anyone can you see, I'm pointing at a ukulele to my left. That's one of my interests. I'm learning how to play ukulele. Right. And so, I, um, again, like being someone that likes to do all these different things. Um, how does one pick like where they want to really lean into to, to go and cre- become part of that 1% you talk about in the book? Because you don't need to become the best ukulele in the world, but I want to learn how to play so I can be so I can bust it out at a party and have fun and sing in front of my friends. I want to be able to make good pizza. But, but I also feel like I'm pulling myself in all these different directions. Like how do you think about things as far as, hey, this is a hobby versus this is something I want to maybe go monetize? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean the 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 both good and the bad thing is that it's hard to monetize anything. Like making money is hard to do. Sure. And uh uh most things you're passionate first and then you figure out how to monetize. Mon- monetization is a byproduct of passion. Now, that's not always true. Sometimes people say to themselves, "Hey, this is a really good thing. I want to I want to make some money, so I'm going to do it this way. Like I asked Mark Cuban once on my podcast. I'm, I'm 
name dropping, but this was an interesting thing. He said, I said, did you, it seems like a common theme of your most successful businesses is basketball. Like even your very first business brought broadcast.com, which by the way, I did some websites for back in 1999 or 1998, uh, started because you wanted to be able to watch basketball on the internet. You couldn't watch your, your favorite Ohio uh, you were living in Dallas. You wouldn't, couldn't watch your favorite Ohio basketball team on TV. So you want to watch it on the internet. So you started broadcast.com. And I said, is that the reason you got into business? And he was like, hell no. I got into business because I wanted to make a lot of money. <laughs> and and I don't quite believe his answer, but his answer is still a good answer. It's it's fair. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't really know what, you know, I don't think, I don't think monetization is the first thought. I think, the things that I've monetized in my life, for instance, the first thing I ever monetized was making websites for people. Well, when the web came out, I became obsessed with it. Like, and when I say came out, it's like three universities in America got servers, uh, web servers when Tim Berners-Lee first developed the web. It was MIT, Stanford, Carnegie Mellon. I was at a grad student at Carnegie Mellon, and I just became obsessed with the web. I, I, it's almost like I took a break from writing 3,000 words a day because I was making, oh my gosh, this this whole hypertext thing, this is a new art form. No one mm. knew then it was going to be this commercial thing. I thought, oh, this is going to be a new way to write three-dimensional books <laughs> with images and text and yeah. like you could link to other – like you could have a story and some character in the story and his – his name could be hyperlinked. You click on it and you get his story now. And I just thought the web was amazing. So I learned everything I could about it, which was not a lot back then. There was no tools. You had to just go to the guts of, you know, what the, you know, the, the web server to figure out how to make a website. And, you know, that became the very first thing I monetized is that when it did start becoming commercial, guess what? People needed to make a website. It wasn't an accident. People actually needed one. And so that was the first thing I monetized. Then I became obsessed with investing. I want, because I lost money investing, I wanted, I realized, oh, there's something happening here that I didn't realize. And, uh, you know, I, I could help people make websites and, and I've never, I had $0 in the bank. I had never made money in my life. And, Suddenly people were asking me like, well, how, sh- how should we make this website? Like the Wu-Tang Clan needs a website. What should we do? Or <laughs> The Matrix, the movie needs a website. We want it to be really big because it's science fiction. What should we do? And so I was making all these interesting websites and I had to charge for it. So I couldn't believe it. The very first time I got paid, I made a website and my brother-in-law and I, we split like $20,000. So I had $10,000 in my bank account. It's the first time in my life I had more than $500 in my bank account. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, this is, this is pretty cool. So, so I monetized that. And then when I got into investing, I was, eventually I was able to monetize that once I stopped losing millions of dollars. And, you know, then I was both writing about investments and running a hedge fund and I knew how to make websites. So I built a social media site for investors called stockpicker.com. I monetized that. I sold that to the street.com in 2007. And then suddenly, like my writing was just by itself starting to make money. And I have been able to successfully 
monetize that in many different ways. And it's, it's given me so many great opportunities. So including coming on your podcast. So I've been able to, to monetize that. I never really monetized stand up comedy. Yeah. That's what I was going go to with that. What? Yeah. Like that, that would require like a l- more, I, I was obsessed with it again for about six years. I, I did up to 10 shows a week. Wow. Uh, I traveled all over the world doing comedy, uh, definitely all over the U S but I say all over the world because I also traveled all over the Netherlands doing it. And uh, right, right, like the week before COVID. Oh, shit. And then I, I, but I never really monetized it. I just, I owned a comedy club too. And I, I broke even on, on that. I sold it back and I, and I broke even on it. So that wasn't bad. It was probably a better outcome than most comedy club owners, <laughs> just knowing what I know now about the comedy club business. Yeah. But, um, uh, but I couldn't help myself. Like I, I, sometimes I think to myself, Hey, maybe I should have spent that time, building another business or I should have moved out to Silicon Valley and done some investing out there. Like I would have made a lot more money and, but I don't know. I, I don't like it. I don't like doing that. So I, I, and I really loved comedy. So I just had to do it. I love that, man. I, so I'd love to you know dive into the book a little bit. And, and first of all, thank you for sharing that because it gave, you know, I think that my takeaway is like, loving what you do matters most. And I, and I think that, you know, as you start to meet, at least in my experience, people that have bigger balance sheets, it's way less about like the next zero and way more about like sucking the fruits out of life. Right. And so, I mean, there, but there was one point, like when I started doing comedy, there was one point I was having a difficult time financially. I was like in between deals and investments and also the business that I had been running kind of was falling through a little bit Mm -hmm. like not really working out and i also had gotten a a divorce and i basically gave my wife all of my money like i had nothing left because i just assumed the business would keep on generating and i wanted her to be okay sure and uh uh she she had some issues she she needed to be okay and um uh, you know so I, and I was living in Airbnb, so I, I wasn't renting and I wasn't owning, but sometimes I would stay at friends' houses and stuff. And I, here I was, I was in my late forties or forty-five years old, and and doing this. And it wasn't like I was doing great that at that moment. I mean, I had deals in place, so I knew in the future I would be great. But uh, it, it was a it was a hard time, and but I couldn't stop doing comedy. <laughs> People would say, "Why don't you just focus on your business?" I, I couldn't help myself. Yeah. And it, it wasn't always pleasant financially. I just couldn't help myself. What, um, so when, when you start thinking of the, I guess, you know, we're really talking about this concept of adult learning, right? Like learning new things and leaning into them and like, you know, leaning into your passions. Right. Which is, I mean, if you think of the, you know, I mentioned it earlier on the show, this show was born. That event I did at TEDx was because I was, I was so burnt on trying to make money and I'm like, man, I just want to fucking do something that's interesting and meet cool people. And so I'm like, what's the opposite of trying me hustling to make a dollar? And for me, it was do a TEDx event, which is a com- community organized TED event. It cost me money. I didn't, I didn't even make money. I, I lost money by doing it. Yeah. But it was very satisfying. So I get that there's a balance between the two. And I think that that's, that's really what I just heard you say is like, yeah, look, like you got to like pay the bills and not stress out about money. But at the same time, it's like at what expense? And I know some people where it's like, you know, hobby shmobby, show me the money. And that's all they care about is making money. A lot of my friends are like this. And I have a lot of friends that are like, yeah, I'm good. I just want to enjoy my life. And I think like if I've learned anything from you over the last 30 minutes, it's that 
I think you got to pick what's right for you. I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, you have to, you know, let's say, let's say you're, you're, how old are you, Darius? I'll, I'll be 45 in May. Okay. You're 45. Okay. So let's say you're going to have 20 more years where you can, I mean, that's simplifying. Maybe you'll have 80 more years where you're pursuing your passions, but let's just say you have 30 more solid, healthy years of pursuing your, your, your passions. Well, this is like your prime time too. Like you have still the energy of youth, but you're starting to have the wisdom of age. And so this is prime time for many, many activities. Like, like you're not going to be a basketball player at this point. And you might not be, you might not have the experience yet to be like a world famous historian, but there are many, uh, passions you could pursue now that you're in the sweet spot for age-wise. So maybe you have 10 years for some for some of those passions where at 55, you become too old and before 45, you're too young. What are you going to do? Spend 70% of that, seven of those years making money so that you could then, I don't know, write a novel or whatever it is, you, or learn to play the ukulele. Ukulele requires you to have some muscle memory. Well, every year you get older now, you have less and less capacity for muscle memory. So, you know, it's... It's it's very tricky. You can't you only have one life. It's such cliche, but it's really true. You're not going to get another chance to do many things. Was that so let me ask you a question. So so moving on to the book, was that really kind of what motivated you to write Skip the Line is this idea of maximizing our time to do what we want to do? Give us some background on that. Yeah, so I always feel like it's not worth pursuing something unless you're going to really like and okay, I I have a ping pong table and I play ping pong with my kids, but I'm not passionate about it. I'm like pretty good because I've been playing since I was a kid, but I'm not, I have all the bad habits. Someone once tried to teach me good habits and it didn't stick. Um, so I like playing, but I'm not going to ruin my life over it. But, um, you know, when I am really interested in something, it's not to me worth doing unless I get good at it. So I could, again, appreciate the artistry and the nuances in ways that kind of normal citizens uh, as opposed to professionals of that area won't understand and won't be able to appreciate that beauty. And uh, I, I saw that a lot of people were like that, where they were working really hard at their jobs, but they were like just mildly unhappy. And there were always things that they would try to do on the weekends because you're only doing something once a week you're not going to get really good at it. Mm. And if you don't do the right techniques to master something, you're not going to master it. And you, you might make your pizzas only on Sunday evenings for your family. That's not going to be good enough to be anywhere near as good as a great pizza chef, as I'm sure, you know, sure. and, uh, uh, so I saw a lot of people were in that kind of situation and I was too. I wanted to get good at comedy. I wanted to get good at computers, investing, writing, chess, poker, all these things along the way. And the, and I found there were the same techniques over and over again to get good at something. So I, I found this out not only for myself, like I went from being a chess master to being a good poker player, for instance, there were some th- skills that translated mm. and there were some meta skills to learning that translated. Like, how do you learn something quickly, as quickly as possible? How do you do, use the 80-20 rule to learn quickly? You find the 20% to study that gives you 80% of the value um, so that you could, again, you know, I'm 55. 
uh, and I've been doing this all my life, I don't have forever to learn something new. So I, that's why the book's called Skip the Line. I want to learn and be great, but I want to learn super effectively and efficiently. And, and most people do not study things effectively and efficiently because they just don't know how. So I wrote this book to explain how. And it's not only my own experiences, but this became a passion of mine on my podcast where I would ask, you know, world champions of whatever field they are, uh, you, know, wh- you know, whether it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in basketball or Tony Hawk in, you know, skateboarding and Richard Branson in business, what were the, how did you learn to learn? What was your meta learning techniques? And, uh, you know, so, so the book is really a combination of my own experiences plus what I've learned on doing, you know, over a thousand of these podcasts with, with real peak performers. And I really did feel that you can skip the line and learn what you want and get what you want by not taking the usual path and having the usual excuses everyone else has. Yeah, you, you talk about, so there's two concepts in here that I think are, are really important. One's this idea of being a life scientist, and but, but, but prior to like, you know, being a scientist and experimenting is this, this concept of working out the muscles, this idea muscle, right? And, and so I, I mentioned before we got on the show, but I, and, and what's funny is I stumbled upon your work. This is like a few years ago and I started doing this, right? I said, so I'm going to challenge myself to come up with 10 new ideas a day. Just I'm an ideator. I'm a creative person. I'm a person. And I was really stuck in my business growing this. Like, you know, I grew a company of about a thousand employees. And so I was just working all the time. I wasn't really being creative. I was just running this company, this business with, with some partners. And so I was like, I just want to be creative. And so every night I'd, my, I had a one-year-old, my one-year-old's not going to be 10 in July. So this is nine years wow. ago, I guess I was doing this. And I was like, all right, I'm going to come up with 10 new ideas a day. And I saw it. So every night I'd lay there and he, until he fell asleep. Cause if I left the room, he'd start crying and I would just come, it would take like an hour. So I'd get an hour a night to sit there and ideate and I could come up with any idea, good, bad, or indifferent. And, and I would ideate and ideate and come up and I did this for 140 days straight and I ended up with 1400 ideas. And then I, and then I give it to my assistant. I say, I need you to organize these. And, and, and then I got really, I, the thing I struggled with, 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 with this was, I was like, well, how do I execute on this? So I got overwhelmed. So I'd love like, yeah. like I, I, what was cool was to your, to the point that you make in the book is like, it, it, it was a muscle. I got stronger. At it, I got better at it. But how does one do this without getting overwhelmed or getting like annoyed like I did? What are your thoughts on that? Sure. And, and let, let me just say like when the very first time I went broke after selling that company that made websites. So this is like over 20 years ago, it's like 1999, 2000. Uh, again, I got really depressed I was losing my house, really just losing everything, losing my self-esteem, my, my sense of self-worth because money drives so much of us in society. And I got these waiter's pads just because I liked the format. You could fit it in your pocket. And it looks kind of a little grungy as opposed to these, like, these fancy notebooks. And uh, I started – like all I could do all day was just walk. I had no – job. I was, I had no money. I was, nobody could sell my house. I lived like right next door to the world trade center when nine 11 happened. So nobody, obviously nine 11 was bad for many reasons. So I, I can't say my reason was really bad, but obviously no one was buying my house at that point, even though I was going broke. Like I literally was broke and I couldn't afford it. And, uh, I, I, I started going to this cafe early in the morning and just writing 10 ideas a day down and after a few months of doing this, or even after a few weeks, I started to feel excited 
again for the first time in like a year or two. Like I was excited about doing something, about writing ideas down. Mm. It gave me like, it's almost like buying a lottery. Every idea is like a lottery ticket. Like this might be the idea I do and and become happy again and successful and and whatever and or have fun or or whatever. So I'd write all sorts of ideas, ideas for books, ideas for businesses, ideas for investment strategies, ideas for other people. Um, like this is what Darius should do, or this is these are 10 pizzas Darius should try to make. And but it really I wouldn't get overwhelmed because I told myself this is not ideas that I'm going to do. Mm. Most likely these are, this is practice. Mm. Like when you, you know, there's lots of things you do that are just practice. Like if you're practicing basketball and you shoot like 10, three pointers in a row, you don't say, Oh man, I wish that was in a game. You say, Oh, this is good practice for when I do play in a game. And, and so, you know, obviously if you write 10 ideas a day, you you can't execute on 3,650 ideas You'll execute on one of them, maybe, if that. I mean, usually most years I will, you know, sometimes I'll write idea lists that I'll turn into articles. So that's like a semi way of executing. And then other times I'll write ideas for other people and I'll send it to them sometimes. And so one time I, one time I wrote uh, letters. So I was obviously obsessed with investing and figure out where I'd gone wrong. And I, I learned a lot. I wrote a lot of software about investing. I read a thousand books about investing. Um, so I really started to learn to become a good investor. And so one time I wanted to meet some great investors. So I wrote like to everybody I admired and said, Hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee and talk to you for a little while? Zero people responded. I sent about 20 emails. Zero people responded. Because it's not as if Warren Buffett is going to get my email and say to his secretary, you know, Gladys, hold everything. Some (laughs) random guy wants to buy me a 60 cent cup of coffee. I really have to meet him. (laughs) Like, that's never going to happen. And it didn't happen. So, So I wrote instead, like, I really researched everybody's business that I was writing to. And I wrote... 20 emails again, but this time with ideas, like because I was getting pretty good at exercising my idea muscle by this point, yeah. I wrote everybody 20 ideas about, oh, here's 10 articles you could write. Here's 10 investment strategies mm. you should try. Here's 10 stocks that seem to fit your style, you know, because of this, this, and this reason. And then people responded. And so one hedge fund manager responded and I got to know him and he ended up allocating money to me. And I started my own hedge fund because of that. And Another guy, Jim Cramer, I had written, here's 10 articles you should write uh, about investing. If you write this, I'll subscribe to you know your website or whatever. And he wrote back right away and he said, these are great ideas. You should write them. And so I started writing for his website, which then got me, uh, that was the street.com, but that got me appearances on his shows on CNBC, which also got me to be a columnist for many years, uh, about 10 years on the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and I, my first three or four books were uh, about investing. And so writing these idealists kind of inadvertently, because I got good at exercising this idea muscle, it gave me almost every opportunity I've, I've had since then. And, and, and it lifted me out of my depression. The very first idealist I wrote, I never wrote, did the, I never executed on it. But the, the first idea I had was that I wrote down like this in this format was 
I had a, a, an idea for a book called How to Beat Your Friends at Every Game in the Universe. Yeah. So the idea would be like, there's shortcuts if you want to win at Monopoly or Scrabble or Checkers or even Chess uh, or, or Hearts or Bridge or whatever. And so, and since I, I considered myself an expert at games, I loved all kinds of these classic games. I each, you know, each list of 10 ideas were kind of bullet points, what you need to know to beat everyone at Scrabble, what you need to know to beat everyone at Monopoly. And like, if you, if you just know, for instance, the two letter words, there's like 103 of them, you'll beat all your friends and family (laughs) at Scrabble. If you know that you should only, that you should, you should beg, borrow and steal to get the orange properties of Monopoly, you'll win at Monopoly. And, uh, and there's all sorts of reasons for this, but, uh, but I never, I never wrote that book, but it was so much fun thinking about it. It kind of lifted me out of this multi-year depression I was in. Oh, I love that, man. Go, go St. James Place. I think, I think, is that an orange property? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. St. James Place, New York and Tennessee. I love it. New York Avenue and Tennessee Avenue. Because, you know, the most frequently visited square on the whole Monopoly board is jail. Because you could go to jail from the dice. You could go to jail if you land on the go to jail uh, square. And two community chess cards tell you to go to jail. So since that's the most common square and since seven is the most common role, that puts you right in the middle of the orange properties. Oh, got it. So, um, so I'll, I'm, man, I've been dying to talk to you about this. I'm going to go off the book for one second. Then we're going to come right back. So, uh, I ran across your article, your blog on idea sex. And I got to tell you, it is when I bring this up. So me and my business partner, we had idea sex every single day. I, I t- first of all, I brought it to him and I'm like, Hey, I just wrote Does your this. wife know. No, yeah, my wife is cool about it. Uh, my wife, my wife's very open minded. She's she's a uh, polyamorous when it comes to uh, ideas. Um, so okay, good. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So so um, I I come up to him. And I'm like, dude, I just read this this really cool article by this guy James Altucher around idea sex. I'm like, man, we have idea sex all day. We just sit in the office and idea and ideate like crazy. And we would come. I mean, literally, I'd sit in there for four hours a day. And we built this company from like a startup. I kid you not to a thousand employees in three years. Okay. And, wow. and a lot of the value was because of us ideating and coming up with stuff and ripping it apart. And it was probably one of the best seven years of my life in professionally. And, and so it was a term I just started using casually to almost everyone. I'm like, well, you just need to have idea sex. And we started talking about having idea menage a trois, like all these, you know, we really went wild with it. So I'm on, you know, uh, have you ever heard, heard of Brad Lee dropping bombs podcast? No. Okay, so he's got a this, he's got a pretty popular podcast called Dropping Bombs. He's out of Vegas. His name is Brad Lee L E A. And so I'm on his show, and he's got a really cool studio. And I bring it up, and he got so, <laughs> he did not like he got, he's like I don't have idea sex with any other guy, you know. And it was a super <laughs> awkward moment on the show. And I and I found that some people get I get really awkward when I bring up the term idea sex, like the word sex and idea, like they they can't get past the the fact that I'm saying sex. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's their issue completely. <laughs> like that's sex, of course, means something different when you say idea sex. It it means combi- combining two ideas to make a better idea. Like if I like, uh, let's say I like sushi and I like pizza. Idea sex might be let's put tuna tartare on a pizza, and 
you know, sometimes you can go to sushi places and get a sushi pizza. And that's like an example of idea sex. Oh man. I, I just, I had to share that story with you because it is a thing where I bring it up and, and it's funny to your point. It's not my, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of a provocative person a little bit anyway, but, and so me saying it to people there, it's not shocking that I would say something like that, but I was just wondering if you, if you, you've had the same response because man, people get so weird when I say it, I'm like, dude, it's, it's obviously I'm talking about two ideas coming together, but they, but they can't get past that. But anyway, I, I had to show. Yeah. I, 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 everybody always has a reaction, but I think that's why the phrase is good is that you get, it gets that reaction. And, um, you know, like when I created this company, Stock Picker, it was really a combination of my interest in stocks, in programming and, and, and the web. For, you know, I made websites for many years for a living and writing because I wanted to make a, a, a social media site about finance. I was interested in all these things, but I really hated newspapers. Like I felt I feel newspapers do a really poor job of telling you the news so there was no news on the site. It was just a very useful site for investors. And uh, it was like my dream site for investing. And that was really a product of IdeaSex. Would you say that's one of your best IdeaSexes or do you have an all-time favorite outside of that? Uh, no, I have lots of favorites. So <laughs> I I would say it's it's not even m- close to my favorite. Like I have all sorts of things that, you know, I've combined and played around with, you know, on even with writing, like, I think it's a very important thing to, there's lots of ways to have idea sex with writing, like to, to, and, and this is true for comedy as well, to take two completely separate concepts and ideas and sort of combine them into an article. And, and that's always, you know, comedy does that all the time. Totally. Uh, uh, like there's a comedian, Andrew Schultz, who has a, a, a well-known joke that um, he, he's like, you know, why do countries that are the worst at treating their, the way they treat their women, why do they always have the best food? Like no one ever says, Hey, let's go out for some Canadian tonight. Like they say, let's, let's go for Middle Eastern food. Or let's go for Chinese food. Like the Chinese people kill their baby girls. And you know, they, that's the food that, everybody loves. <laughs> so, so that's idea sex. Like that's all stand up comedy is like idea sex. Oh man. Like I love Al Qaeda, um, um, falafel, man. It's just, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it probably is amazing. <laughs> they really, there's the, probably, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. There's, 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 pro- there's probably no better falafel out there actually. Like that's, they have to eat cheaply when they're hiding in their caves and stuff. So, <laughs> oh man, that's amazing. <laughs> Oh, the, oh the, you're, you're, that's, I love it. Yeah, Andrew. But like, like, I'm like writing also. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I've, uh, he's he's. He, I mean, he because I owned a comedy club, you know, and he, he's been on my podcast a bunch of times. I've been on his, and and you know, he would perform all the time at the club. Uh, but um, you know, and then you look at uh, uh, I forget. I had another example of a real fun example of idea sex, but whatever. That's that's. Oh, with writing, for instance. Sometimes, uh, you know, I'll take I'll take a piece of writing that has been popular, that has been extremely popular, and I will mimic the structure of that writing in a very as specifically as I can. And so, by very popular, I don't mean like Gone with the Wind or The Wizard of Oz or some of these books from a hundred years ago. I mean like, you know, like 
the Buddha's Four Noble Truths. This is a piece of text that's been popular for 2,300 years. Right. Uh, the Bible has been popular for 3,500 or give or take years. And so billions of people have been influenced by these structures. So like the Four Noble Truths is kind of the foundation of Buddhism, for instance. I'm not a, a Buddhist or anything. I just use this text. You know, they, basically there is suffering, you know, you can't avoid it, but there is a way out of it. Here's the way out of it. And so I might take an, a concept like the banking crisis and I'll say, look, this banking crisis is suffering, but <laughs> you know, there is a way out of it. Like, and I'll do the exact structure almost word for word. No one will ever know. No one knows. No one says, Hey, that's the four noble truths you just did to describe the banking crisis. No one accuses me of that. And but because I know that's a structure that has resonated in people's mm -hmm. minds for 2,300 years, I know when I structure another thing in the exact same way, it's going to be a successful article. That's and so, it always is. That's so smart. You, uh, you, you made me just think of a stand-up comedian, Anthony Jaselnik. Have you seen him? Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, he, yeah. he does that a lot too, where he goes one way and then he, and his punchlines are always like, wait, like you're like, what? What did he just say? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like uh, one of my favorites from him is, and I'll, I'll try, I'll try to mimic his style. But he has such a unique style of, of talking. But he's like, you know, I, I, I take care and support a child in Africa for just seventy five cents a day. I can feed that child. I can clothe that child. I can provide a home for that child. Again, for seventy five cents a day, I could send that child to school, which is so much cheaper. Than it caught than the cost it was to send that kid there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, he, like it's almost like it's almost like a riddle. <laughs> like you th I'm always trying to figure out how is he gonna how is he gonna bring this around? Yeah. Like, and he just gets you so good. He's like, and he's like, yeah. my my mom. I'm I'm, gonna, I'm really bad at copying other uh, stand up comedians, but yeah, he's like, my mom's like the worst human, and he'll like have some like totally like it just yeah he he hits you he, I say he t bones you because he gets you thinking one thing and ends somewhere what you don't expect. To your point, that, yeah. that's the like, that's that that's a really cool way of of thinking of idea sex. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that's totally what he does is he, he, he completely like takes two different things and like twists them in this weird way. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing, man. I, I just want to thank you right now for coming. I don't know if you came up with that term, but if you did, I'm thanking you right now because it has been something that has brought me so much joy in my life. So thank you for, for that. It's a big appreciation. Oh. oh, you're welcome. You know, I made a, again, this is not a business, but I made this site just because so many people were saying you should make a website to um, keep track of your idealists. So I made a site, notepad.com, N-O-T-E-P-D.com. There's no monetization on the site, but thousands of people use it to keep track of their idealists. Oh. It's, uh, people have a lot of fun. I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm, I'm all over that. I'm, a, like, I'm an idea monkey. So um, I want to I move into one of the concepts because I think that this was a really important concept from the book, which is like, how do you choose the right idea? And you talk about this idea called your conspiracy number. Do you mind kind of giving our listeners an idea? Like, what does that mean? How do you use a conspiracy number when trying to pick the right idea? Yeah. So the more things that have to conspire for something, for a good outcome, then the less likely that outcome is going to happen. Like, let's say, you know, hypothetical situation, Giselle Bündchen gets a divorce from Tom Hardy, and you decide that a good outcome for yourself is if you marry Giselle Bündchen. <laughs> and 
Well, many things have to conspire. One is you're married. So that's one big thing that has to not be true for you to marry Giselle Bunchen. Uh, another thing is uh, Giselle Bunchen has to be attracted to you. And, you know, she's hanging out with her jujitsu instructor now who, you know, is presumably much more attractive than 99.9% of the listeners and, and, and us. So that has to conspire against it, it, that has to conspire in your favor which is unlikely and she lives i don't know in antigua or whatever like that has to you don't so you have to live in the same city which is unlikely to happen so here we, we've already reached a conspiracy number of three and we haven't even really touched the things that would have to conspire for a marriage between you and giselle bunch to work out so what does that mean it means this is a bad goal for you. You should not try for this mm. goal. And I, I didn't develop this. This is, um, uh, I was once when I, when I was about 20 years old, I was working on a chess program, a computer program that a software that played chess. And we wanted to test this conspiracy, conspiracy theory out on chess. So in chess, if you lose your queen and you're not taking a queen back, like you're not just trading Queens, Lots of things have to work out for you in order for that queen move to be in order for that queen loss to be good. Mm. Like you have to, you know, checkmate the king pretty quickly uh, or else you're going to be just a queen down. And so we would look at all the, you know, so basically every move would have to, every possible move your opponent has would have to conspire for things to work out for you. And you usually, you know, they don't, most moves don't work out. So that's how we would teach the computer how to pick a move by the fewer things that have to conspire together to, to make this move a good move, then the better the move is. And, um, but I realized this could be used for anything in life, like the Giselle, Giselle Bunchen example. So with all goals, uh, you know, it, it, you know, and you can look at this in investments too, like, okay, first Republic bank, that stock is like nine bucks now down from 174 because people think it's in trouble. Is it a good buy or not? Well, here's the things that have to conspire. They have to not go out of business. People are thinking they might go out of business. They have to get a bailout that doesn't, you know, liquidate all the shareholders. They have to get a bailout period. They, we, we, we have to have some transparency into how much trouble they actually are in. So it's already too many things have to conspire for this to be, it might be a good buy. It might go from you might buy it and it goes from nine to one seventy four. So greed would compel someone to buy it. But when you look at the conspiracy number, it probably doesn't have the right risk reward mm. uh, to to buy that investment. So this works for many things in life. Whether you're playing chess, doing stand up comedy, starting a business. Like let's say I wanted to, you know, like Fred Smith is an interesting example. He's the founder of FedEx. Mm -hmm. He a lot of things had to conspire for that idea to work. Like he had to basically get a bunch of planes. Uh, with, you know, he had no business experience and he had to basically buy a bunch of planes and convince people to send packages through his planes rather than the post office. So I don't really know the story of FedEx, but presumably he solved the things that were conspiring against him uh, and probably did it cheaply. Like maybe he he didn't use planes at first. I don't know. Maybe he used one plane and just did, took two locations. So there's ways you could eliminate risk by reducing the number of things that have to conspire to make your idea work. Yeah, I love that, man. Elon Musk is a good example of that, right? I mean, you look at the the odds of, especially if you think of like, there was that one documentary, like what killed the electric car? Oh, I'm going to I'm gonna buy Tesla, this company that's failing, 
essentially, or I think he was, you know, he bought it when it, after it had already not done well. And then, you know, he was a visionary and right place, right time and threw a ton of money at it and took a ton of risk and multiple things conspired in his favor that shouldn't have, you know, and now he's one of the second wealthiest guy on the planet at one point was the wealthiest guy on the planet. I think a lot of times people use those, those high, is that a higher, that's a high conspiracy number, right? If, if it's a low, low likelihood event, is that correct? Yeah. Right. So yeah. I think a lot of entrepreneurs and people use these high likely or high conspiracy, low likelihood events and they, and then they go, oh, I'm going to go do that. And, and, and I feel like you're setting yourself up for failure. Whereas, and, and there's a saying, which you, you probably have heard before, which is that, that success is many fathers and failures an orphan. So my feelings yeah. are like, I don't, I mean, like, unless you, you're really dying to achieve something, it's like the odds are that Elon Musk should be broke right now. Not like, like literally at zero, right? Not, not, well, not the well, but, guy on the planet. but here's the flip side. So if something has a higher conspiracy number, you can you can take action to reduce the things mm. that conspire against you. So I'll tell you the classic example is Richard Branson starting Virgin Airlines. So Richard Branson was, you know, he one time he some plane got canceled from Puerto Rico to Jamaica, something like that, two islands. And he was going to meet a girl on the other island. So he really wanted to make this plane. So what he did was he asked everyone who was on the cancel, who was going to be on the canceled plane, hey, if we all put our money together, we can get a private plane just to take us to Jamaica or wherever he was going. And, and that gave him the idea, hmm, I could maybe start an airline. He was 27 years old and he was a music magazine publisher. Right. So people were telling him, how are you going to get a plane? How are you going to get permission to land in you know, the British airport, I forgot what it's called, and JFK airport. Like, you know, how are you going to get the British government degree? There's all these regulations. How are you going to hire people? You're good at hiring music people, but not like pilots. And so he did. So he, what he did was he reduced the conspiracy number. He reduced the risk. So he called up, first he called up Boeing and, and he, he asked Boeing, I don't know how he got in touch with the CEO, or he said, he said to Boeing, can I borrow a plane for a year? Not buy it, but borrow it. And then I will pay you back completely. And I will buy, then buy, start buying planes from you. And they're like, who are you again? You're a music magazine publisher who's 27 years old and you have no airline experience. And, and he said, and they said, you don't have permission to fly into any of these airports. And he said, okay, but listen, Airbus is dominating Europe you're not. So you need to have a presence in Europe. So let me get permission to land in England. And if I get that route, just lend me the plane and I'll pay you back and it'll be good for your whole business. So, okay. They said, yes. Then he went to the you know, British government and said, look, you're getting criticized because British Airways is a monopoly and you need to have more that you need to have competition. You need to have one more than one airline. And so they said, okay, well, if you can get a plane, you can have you can start an airline. We'll give you permission. And so he put, he figured out a way to reduce all the risks. And then he had one flight, you know, per day going from like New York to London and back. And he had an airline, man. And he built up from that. So I have a friend that calls that, that, that like, he calls that a safe test. He's like, what's your safe test? What's the minimum thing you can do to test your idea out to see if it has legs and what's like it, where where you can then go and put more effort into it? What, what, what have you have you heard that term before? What are, what are your thoughts on like? A, a, I haven't, a, but that that's like that's like the minimal viable product, right. you know, things like that. So and and also that's that is this concept of reducing 
the conspiracy number. So like I try to mathematically almost with this conspiracy number idea, figure out how to eliminate the risk. So, so in, in, in the book, you're, you're really talking about what ways to do this. And, and would you mind to kind of just give us like a quick soundbite on like what, if, you're, if I'm trying to reduce risk, obviously there's this idea of doing a safe test using Branson would be an example of, Hey, I'm going to go and ask for permission to borrow a plane. So therefore I'm not buying the plane. And then I get turned down. I asked to borrow it. Then I go to the government and get them to approve me. And then once I got the two sides of, uh, uh, agreed, then I can go and run a test, right. And see if I can get to work. Like, is there like when, when people are doing this, we, what am I doing? Writing down all the risks and seeing which one of these I, I think I can eliminate and building a plan around it. Can we, give me a quick thought on that. I think one good way to eliminate risks is to do an idea manually rather than writing the software for it. So like with, I don't know exactly how Airbnb started, but let's just pretend I would uh, find two, three of my friends who are going on vacation and I would say, Hey, can for money, can I uh, rent your place out for here and there for a few days each time or one night each time uh, to people I find on the internet? And they had some, let's say they had some friends who said yes. And then they, the Airbnb guys would scrape Craigslist, anybody who was like looking for a short term apartment. And, you know, and they would try to manually hook these people up with. Airbnbs, even though they had no software yet. So, uh, you know, that's you can if you can manually test an idea before you write a single line of software. I think that's a really good safe test. Oh, that makes so much sense. I love that. You know, Oracle, which is a a, a more not as famous example. Like we think, what is Oracle? It's a database company. They sell this massive database to big corporations. Well, when they first started, they didn't have a database. They would go into General Motors and they would say, we have this database. It could do this, 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 this. And General Motors would say, can it also do this, 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 this? And Larry Ellis would say, of course it can. That's easy for us. General Motors would say, okay, we're in. We want to buy the product called Oracle, the database. And Larry Ellison would say, no problem. But for the first six months, we need to have our professional installers come in and install it for the General Motors you know, programmers and stuff. And we'll teach them how to use it. So they'd go into General Motors and they would literally build the product then. (laughs) And that's how they built Oracle over years. It was a service company until pretending to be a product company until actually they faked it until they made it. Oh, that's that's but that's how they reduce the risk. Why build a a super expensive multi-million dollar database before you know the use cases? Once they knew the use cases, because they built them for their customers, they actually had a database. You know, it's interesting that, like, especially nowadays, you know, like, like you got started as an entrepreneur, you know, 20 plus years ago, same here. Like, it was expensive to, to, to test ideas. It was expensive to, yeah. to, to, to even start a business. I mean, it was like, nowadays, you can test an idea for pennies. Uh, you know, you could test really cheaply because you could build websites, you know, on Fiverr really cheaply. You could uh, uh, even sophisticated websites like you'll see uh, if you go to the notepad, this site I made for keeping track of your ideas. It has essentially all the functionality of Twitter, plus uh, has some AI stuff in there. It has like the idealist stuff. And we built it for almost zero dollars. And wow. uh, it, 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 it's it, the, the website's great. Like no one complains about it. People love it. And, uh, but you could do that for anything. Like, you know, you're not, if when I was going into stand-up comedy, everyone said, what do you think you're doing? You're not going to be a famous stand-up comedian. Okay. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. But how did I reduce risk? 
Well, I went up on stage as much as I could, whether it was open mics or, you know, where I knew the comedy club owners or I took advantage of, can I do my podcast on stage? And then I would do comedy instead. And I just gradually became known as a comedian in the New York City area. And then I found someone who was a famous comedian that I could tour with. And so we went all over the place. And I had 20 or so comedians on my podcast telling me how to be a great comedian. So I did things to reduce the risk. I have this com- I have this uh, idea in Skip the Line, in the book Skip the Line, called uh, Plus Minus Equals. And this was told to me by Frank Shamrock, who was uh, basically the mixed martial arts, the MMA champion, yep. like all through the 90s and early 00s. And he had to learn every single martial art. And so he told me he did this plus minus equals concept where he would, if he needed to learn a new martial art super quickly, he would find a plus, like someone to teach him, like a master to teach him. He would find equals, other people at his level who were, you know, trying to be great and they would compare notes and they would compete with each other. And then he'd find a minus. Uh, people he could teach because, Mm. you know, you don't truly understand something unless you could explain it simply. So it really helps you understand the nuances and ideas if you could teach others too. So I use that concept plus minus equals in everything I do. So, which is why I love helping people, you know, get to be better writers or I love helping, you know, a lot of people are into chess now since the pandemic because of the TV show, The Queen's Gambit. So I give I, I take chess lessons from a super grandmaster. I know have a lot of equals and we compare notes about how to learn and what our problems are. And I give lessons often to entrepreneurs. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so it helps me too. I, I love that man so much. And I'm, I'm, you know, it's funny is I, 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 I did a lot of research on the book and it's now number one on my list to read it. I'm super excited to read your book. I have a minus question for you now that since we're on the subject and, and, and I do want to be respectful of your time. So I, I want to try to try to get you out of here uh, in a reasonable amount of time here. So my minus question is you being someone that has 70 million downloads, two of the most popular podcasts out there, me being someone that's aspiring to build a badass podcast with million with 70 million downloads, what's your, what would be your advice for someone like myself that's trying to build a podcast with a much bigger download than, than where I'm at right now? Yeah, it's a great question, which there's, there's no easy answer. There's 2 million podcasts out there. So there's, and plus TikTok. So there's a lot of uh, uh, demand for people's attention right now. I mean, or there's a lot of supply sure. uh, of, of, you know, like TikTok, we're all competing against TikTok. TikTok is amazing. Like people say, oh, I never use TikTok. You, you should look at TikTok because it's like these videos of superheroes. People are like jumping from building to building. They're doing magic tricks. They're in- doing this incredible dancing. Like it's like, it's like a bunch of superheroes are, uh, are the top videos on TikTok. And so it's hard to compete with that. Uh, you know, like right now you have an interview show. You're interviewing me, for instance, and you've interviewed other fascinating people, you know, m- much more fascinating than me, I should say. And, but maybe experiment with format. Uh, and you can still do your interviews, but try other format ideas. Like, you know, um, you know, this is right now everybody's obsessed with the banking crisis and you're doing a business related podcast, have an episode where you break down what's happening in the banking crisis so p- listeners can understand in a layman's way and give your opinion on it. Or, mm. 
or during the next election, um, maybe have every, you know, once a week, talk about the gambling odds of each candidate and who you're betting on and why, and like you're, you know, actively trade some of these candidates. You, there's like predicted.org, there's betting sites for candidates. So you could, so it's an, a site ostensibly about the election, but it's also about gambling. And so you look at election analysis from an interesting viewpoint and, and like you could discuss which candidate strategies are increasing their odds and, and so on. Mm. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud, but like, uh, like I have a little mini series called side hustle Fridays where I'll break down, even though I have an interview podcast, you know, every couple of Fridays I'll break down a new side hustle. Someone could easily do where I've interviewed somebody who's made like a million dollars doing that side hustle and they break it down exactly, you know, how to do it just like them. And so play with format a little bit. Uh, like, have you seen these YouTube videos or TikTok videos where people just do man on the street stuff. They go up to yeah. some some girl and say, "Hey, how do you, how do you make a living?" and and they say, "Oh, I'm a lingerie model." And they say, "That's what's up." And then they go on <laughs> to the next person. Like those are addictive. Those videos. So he was played around with format, and that's where he got. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the, one of the guys is like, "Hey, like, how'd you make your money to buy the car you drive?" And he just put, walks up to people that drive like you know McLarens and shit. So yeah, yeah, that's that, yeah, that's interesting. Um, Which, by the way, that resonates in people's imagination because that's the beginning of the movie The Wolf of Wall Street too. Jonah Hill asks Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, "What do you do for a living to drive that car?" Yeah, yeah. and. So it's interesting because that's a a theme that that resonates. That's that's funny. That's interesting because because to your point, that's what you're kind of getting inside of people's heads. But but I love that idea of playing with format. We do solos on Fridays, which is me just kind of giving my life learnings. But but to your point, like. I'm an inquisitive person, like, and I actually understand what happened with Silicon Valley Bank because I'm I have a banking background, right? Um, I hadn't even thought about that. I'm like, I can give you, I can tell you what happened. I can tell you what mark to market means because a lot of people don't even understand what that means, right? Um, or, yeah. or how a bank's capital works, and 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 that's a great idea. I, I hadn't thought about that, so I, I appreciate that very uh, much. And, and then here's another thing too: F- find your equals, okay, and offer to do a swap. You put one of their episodes, like you take a day off and you put one of their episodes on your podcast. Mm-hmm. You do the intro and say, listen, my good friend so-and-so has a great podcast that you should listen to. I'm going to put one of her episodes on so you can listen to it and then stay tuned for me on the next episode. And then she could do it for you as well and do these podcast swaps. Like uh, Jordan Harbinger, you know, he had a podcast called The Art of Charm, but he had falling out with his partners and so we had to start a new podcast from scratch the jordan harbinger show right. and he did this he hit the pavement running like he was asking everybody can i do this swap can i do a promo i'll read ads on my podcast you read ads in yep. your podcast for for each other's podcast and he is now got a huge podcast it's like millions of downloads a month like it's much bigger than mine he started from scratch yeah yeah we, we interviewed him on the show and, and he, he's a he's he had mentioned that that he had went on a lot of shows. I didn't know that he was swapping episodes. I know that he, he's 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 actually done. We've put promos of his show on our show before. Uh, he he did yeah, advertising. He on our is show. Uh, he's so aggressive with that. He's great. He so he really studying examples like that is good. Like when Tim Ferriss started his podcast, he this was in 2014. I had been doing a podcast for about maybe six months at this point. He, he, Tim called me up. And said, do you have some time to talk about podcasts? I said, sure. He asked me like a hundred questions about podcasting. And 
Then a few months later, he started one. Like that's what he did is he talked to everybody he could think of to learn podcasting. That was his like shortcut to, that was his skip the line method in, in starting podcasting. Yeah, man. I love this. I love this. These are such real great, like real life examples. And I really appreciate you humoring me on my question because it was a real question. And when I look at people who have, you know, for me, I love doing the podcast. It's one of these things where, you know, I've been doing it now for, it's been two years since I aired it as a podcast. It was a live stream before this and it's, it's grown a lot, but, but I'm, I'm always wanting to learn how to be better. So appreciate you know, in, 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 um, in skip the line, I write about something called the spoken wheel technique. Right. So the, the wheel is whatever it is that is your core interest and passion. So let's say I'm doing a podcast about peak performance and how to be the best you could be. That's the wheel. And then the spokes are, okay, I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to do a book. I'm going to do, uh, articles every day about episodes and each episode of my podcast, here's the 10 things I learned. And then eventually I'll compile that together and put together a book. I'll do clips on YouTube. I'll give a TEDx talk about the concepts behind my podcast. I'll make a YouTube channel version of my podcast and so on. So there's for any piece of content, don't just be a podcaster. Be You're really about the content. Right. So use all the spokes you can. Yeah, that's uh, and I love that man. I was gonna, I, I I felt like I ran out of time. I wanted to ask you about the spoken wheel, but you're giving such great gems here with perfect examples using my show, which is great for me to to understand how you think like, about things. Like one time, um, oh, I can't, oh, here it is. Hold on. So one time, Scribd, which is like they don't like the being described, so but they're like a net Netflix for books. Oh, you can subscribe for like ten dollars a month. I'm a huge Scribd fan. Yeah, yeah, me too. And I was the first nonfiction Scribd original. So I did a book just for Scribd. They said, do you have any books you can write for us and exclusively for us? And it's like, don't put it on Amazon or whatever, at least for the first six months. And so I basically wrote this book, Think Like a Billionaire. And what I did was I took a dozen or so interviews I had with billionaires. I, I wrote intros and outros for each one. Here's what I learned and then here's the transcript, which was heavily edited. And then here's the outro. The audio book was finished because I had all the podcast episodes. Right. So that's the audio book. And I made this paperback. There's a paperback version, an ebook version, and an audible version. And it's a, a full book. And it was, you know, I don't know. It, because it's on script, it was read by a lot of people. It wasn't necessarily sold a lot because they don't sell books. They sell subscriptions. Sure. But it was it was read by a lot of people. And it's you know, great chapters, like all, all the things in common between all these billionaires. I have, um, I kind of even forget who I have right now, but like Richard Branson, of course, Ray Dalio, Ken Langone, Steve Case, Ted Leonsis, Mark Cuban, and, and on and on, Sarah Blakely. Who was your favorite, who was your favorite billionaire out of those that you interviewed? Probably Sarah Blakely. Yeah. She seems cool. She, she was fun. You do know her husband, Jesse, you know, those guys. Yeah. He's been on a couple of times. Yeah. yeah. He's, I just finished his book, uh, living with the seal with, uh, Goggins. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. And I've had Goggins on as well. Uh, yeah. Oh man. You've had so many great people on your show. That's, that's incredible. Well, Goggins was published by Javon, yeah. you know, at yeah. scribe. So you should reach out to Javon, get Goggins on your podcast. That's, that, that's uh, I just, uh, I'm going to go twist Javon's arm on that one. Probably. I just, I love Goggins and uh, I just finished both of his books. It's, it's, it's very resonative for me in my life at this point. Um, man, I could be on the show with you for like two more hours, James. You're such a fascinating guy. And I mean, seriously, man, this has been super fun for me. Um, 
I'd love, I love, you know, like, like I mentioned earlier on the show, we have a question we end every single show with. Um, and, and then I'd love to have us, you know, plug for our audience different ways to, to connect with you. But before we go to there, um, I, we always like to end the greatness machine with, with the same question, which is, you know, this shows all about people creating greatness and doing so despite the odds. And you've done so many great things in your life. You've created so much greatness and I'm so appreciative to have you here today. Um, but I'd love to end with Thank our you. question, which is what is the number one barrier to creating greatness in the world that you've overcome in your life and how did you overcome it? Well, uh, those are two, really two separate questions, so I'll, I'll answer them separately. I think the number one barrier is when you're too attached to the results, like this better work out or else. And, you know, like, you know, if you're going to play poker for as in just an, I'm giving an example, I'm either going to win money today or my life is just going to suck forever. And instead of viewing it as uh, you know, being detached from the results and focused on improving, like, okay, why did I, you know, bet that Jack 10 from early position? And then of course I lost that hand and, and, and so on. So if you're too attached to results, you have to be detached from the results of, of everything, even a business. Like, of course, a business seems like a much heavier investment of time and money than going to play poker for an evening, but you still have to be detached from results. Like, what am I learning every day? How am I getting better? Am I really giving this my all? Am I today doing what I can to be the best I can be? And if I can't be the best I can be, then gradually your business will morph into something else if you're not attached to the results. And, and that happens all the time when businesses pivot. But if you're too attached to the results, you'll never succeed because you'll start getting disappointed and that disappointment will rent a lot of real estate in your brain that'll it'll it'll kick all the you know original you know excitement out oh you got to move to a, another part of the brain instead of the proactive part of the brain cuz disappointment now owns the proactive part of the brain <laughs> and so that's a a real prevent preventer of success and it's something that we all deal with i deal with it every single day um an adult learner of chess. I was a master as a kid, uh, a nationally ranked master as a kid. I'm still, you're once a ranked as a master, you're always a master, but I'm not that good anymore. I took a 25 year break and now I'm trying to get even better than I was before. And there's all these really fascinating obstacles, including psychology, neuroscience. The game itself has changed in some interesting ways. And if I were to say, oh my gosh, last night I lost a game in a tournament, I'm such an idiot, that would just ruin my, as long as I think like that, it would ruin my chances for improvement. I have to say, okay, I lost this game. It was this particular opening. What mistakes did I made? Where's my plus? I got to go over this with my coach. I got to go over this with my friends. I got to take the lessons I learned and teach it to my students. And then the next tournament, I got to really try to remember what I'm learning and, and play correctly. And if I get too detached, to, attached to the results, I'll just be like, Oh, I'm an idiot. I got to stop playing. Oh, I love it, man. Such, such pearls of wisdom. I mean, bro, you are, you are such a badass. I'm so, uh, this has been literally one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. And, and it's been such a pleasure uh, thank you. you here today. Seriously. Well, it's an honor. I, I, I really, um, it's an honor for you. I don't really go on a lot of podcasts and, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a, it's a, 
it's it's an honor for me to to be on. I really appreciate it, and you ask really good questions. And I like I really love talking about all this stuff. I wish I wish more people asked me to go on pod. Actually, people ask me to go on podcasts. I just I have a hard time reading my email <laughs> I, because I'm because I'm so passionate about getting better at chess right now. That's like all I do. Oh uh, no, understandable. Well, well it's M- good. much uh, unhappiness of my wife because she'd rather be out there building another business. I think. Well, so. she 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 knows who she married, man. So you're a man of many interests. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, no, my, my team, we we we're relentless. So so I, we probably hit you a bunch of times before before we got you on. So it's it's good. I'm glad to have you. But I'd love for you to, um, you know, any any ways people. What are the best ways for people to connect with you? obviously they can go get the book where can they get the book where can they you know find out more about yeah, you get you get skip the line anywhere bookstores presumably or on amazon or at harper collins is the publisher or also my book choose yourself is one of my favorite books that i've written um and uh you could check out uh again it's not a business i'm not trying to market this or anything but notepad.com n-o-t-e-p-d.com you could sign up for free and keep track of your idea list and see other people's idea lists which is really fascinating and you could also get ai to help you come up with your idea list so it's fun very cool so we'll make sure we put those in the show notes like i said oh man so much gratitude here from me having you here on the show today my friend um listeners go check out notepad choose yourself uh the book Skip the Line, as well as uh, James has an amazing podcast with uh, so many amazing guests. Um, I can't wait to, to listen to more of your episodes. And um, with that said, so much gratitude here, James. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, my friend. Thank you, you, and good luck with the ukulele. And if we're ever in the same town together, you got to make me a pizza, no cheese, red sauce, tuna fish, and pineapples. If if you approve, maybe it's not. Maybe that disgusts you. No, but no, no. I'm really curious. I'm all over that. I'm all over that. I will hit you up. So you're in Atlanta, and where else are you? Yeah, is Atlanta where Atlanta? All right, and if you're in Austin, yeah. Austin's the best place for me to make you pizza. That's for sure. So if you're in Austin, let, let me know, and you can come. Come. All right, come I go to Austin occasionally. Last time I was there, I visited our mutual friend Javon. Awesome, man. Well, I'm looking forward to it. With that said, everybody, peace out. We love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. 
On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.